Assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to Tuesday night. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. It is Tuesday night, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> For a moment, I like didn't remember. Um, Alhamdulillah, I, I'm so grateful that, that we are here and um, you know, I thank you everyone to, for, for your prayers and um, you know, we're, Sheikh is still struggling with pain, but Alhamdulillah that we made it here. Um, and I, I just thought I would share, I very, just shortly, like within the last, I think, hour or so, got a really beautiful message um, that, you know, I feel like oftentimes, and I've said this before, like God will send messages um, right at the right time when we need to see them, when we need to hear them, and especially for Sheikh who has been continuing to literally struggle with pain like all night long to the point where he doesn't sleep like all night just from pain um, and just you know tries to get in some rest here and there and then still prepare and make it here for the halakha. These kinds of messages make all the difference in the world and I, I wanted to share it because it's it's not just to us but it's also to the people here at Rasuli and, and it's, it's a very, very sweet, beautiful message. So, um, Assalam, I trust this email finds all of you at the Suli Institute well. I constantly pray that God continues to bless and grant tranquility to all of you in this life and the next. I'm writing to display my absolute and utmost gratitude for the phenomenal work you are all doing. I only became aware of Suli shortly after this Ramadan and have become completely hooked on your videos. The moral clarity, ethical guidance, and deep introspective thought that is displayed in what I always imagined but now have witnessed true and relevant Islamic scholarship is. The first video I watched was the tafsir on Surah Al-Balad and it left me utterly astonished. It's the first time I'd heard such a concise review of the essence of the Quranic message that was beautifully contextualized from the time of revelation to our moment in history. I've used the challenge of the Aqaba from Surah Al-Balad when making challenging decisions and I've never felt more peace with both my decisions and any potential outcomes. Prior to watching these tafsir, I'd always felt like a hypocrite for merely reading the text and not internalizing the true meaning of the Quran. I've also excitedly watched as Project Illumina has unfolded. I'm eagerly and furiously catching up and has been mentioned multiple times in your tafsir. It is truly a groundbreaking project. I've thought about how to convey how appreciative I am, but have failed as I know that words can do no justice to how life-changing this journey of Quranic discovery is. I cannot begin to imagine how challenging it is to continue with this project given life's other demands, but knew, do know that there are many people who genuinely appreciate your dedication. My heartfelt appreciation also goes out to the students who've dedicated this year of their life to study from the Sheikh. What I find truly compelling is the unvarnished honesty, dignity, and humility that is displayed by both you and Dr. Abul Fadl, the veracity with which you strive for justice and virtue and condemn immorality and oppression is clearly the socially difficult and unpopular path, which makes your unwavering commitment even more laudable and truly inspirational. I endeavor to continue to support the work of the Suli Institute, both in spirit and financially. If it wasn't for the work you're doing, then there'd be a lot less reason to be hopeful for the future of the Ummah. Warmest regards and love. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. Um, who to, I don't want to name him because I don't know if he wants me to share, but thank you so much for this incredible, beautiful message. Um, you know, these are the types of messages that if you, you know, are, I mean, there's just, there's nothing but gratitude to feel for that. It makes all of the work that we do here worth it, um, all of the struggle, all of the pain, just to know that we are reaching, you know, at least one person. Um, and, you know, I, I pray, inshallah, that, um, you know, we can continue to, to do this and, and make our way through to the, the end of um, 
of the Quran. You know, it's like we really don't know like how um, people are receiving this unless people write to us. And so I'm extremely grateful when people do share really, really beautiful messages. And again, when they come at a time when, especially when Shaykh has been struggling with pain, they're extra, extra um, meaningful and uplifting. So thank you so much. Um, and I, I just actually want to just take a moment. Um, I, I felt like, um, you know, Surah Mu'mineen, last, the last halakha we did, was just so incredible. I think we're reaching a point. I mean, we, we keep saying, you know, we reach a critical mass and that, um, you know, when, when you start seeing like the transformation in your life and like things happen and you, you remember like, oh, this is what we learned in, in this halakha, in that surah, in that chapter and things start coming together. It's a really exciting feeling because then you feel the transformation in your life and you feel like um, the, the Quran and the lessons are really penetrating um, your, your soul and your psyche. And I, what really struck me, I just thought I would share this, um, you know, with, with Al-Mu'inun is the idea that, you know, it's called the believers, right? And the idea that, you know, this is about humanity and one humanity and that we are the human beings you know, even though God created us all as one, we are the ones that are, are insisting on making divisions between us. I mean, whether that is, you know, within, you know, like different faiths or, you know, different tribes, different, um, you know, even within Muslim context, you know, like there are so many different um, groups, even within families. And, um, you know, the, the idea that, okay, here's, Here's the common decency that binds us as human beings. You know, we were all created the same way. We all started, you know, from this clot of blood. We, you know, we developed. God wants us to be beautiful. I mean, you know, like the idea that, you know, okay, we, we share this decency and, and that God just wants us to do these fundamental things and we will be okay. And they're all beautiful. They're all good. They're like praying, um, you know, like um, avoiding all forms of vain talk. Um, sorry, I'm just going to do a quick summary. Zakat um, being, you know, um, guarding your private parts, not engaging in any unlawful sexual activity, keeping your promises, um, praying, you know, this, this is like so like beautiful and fundamental and good. And, you know, and it makes me also think about our non-Muslim fellow human beings, right? Because the, the question of, you know, um, will only Muslims go to heaven, which I know a lot of Muslims struggle with, you know, we're also told in the Quran, clearly, that there will be Muslims, Jews, and other people in, in heaven, and that's not our business, and that God will settle the differences between us. You know, that's not from what we knew, that's from other parts of the Quran. Um, and that, you know, we as Muslims should be on the forefront of doing good, we should be like rushing to do good. And that, you know, for all the people who like refuse to believe or refuse to trust in God, you know, what is the God that you're believing in instead? This is a God of goodness and beauty and love and, and everything good. Like, why would you not want to believe in the God of goodness as opposed to, you know, any other God that you insist on, on believing in or, you know, or no God? Um, you know, and so all of these things, you know, when you, when you start putting them together, and it, to me it's just, it's so beautiful and powerful and, and, you know, the idea of even repelling evil with good and just, you know, always thinking, beautiful, kind, good thoughts, and that attitude of just positivity and light and love. I mean, you know, then you just, when you start putting all the pieces together, it's, it just is nothing but inspirational and exciting and beautiful. And it's just a constant reminder that, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's meaning, there's purpose, and it's, and it's beautiful. 
Um, and anything short of that is, is just from the shaitan. And so, of course, Mu'minun ends at the end um, by reminding us to ask God to protect us from, from shaitan, who is, extreme, is real and has a very devious impact upon us. And one of the students here said to me something that was really, really striking, because we know that God is, uh, is, you know, is telling us the truth when we are, you know, have to remember that shaitan is our avowed enemy and that shaitan is extremely devious. What if shaitan has a 30-year plan for you? Like, God, you know, maybe shaitan can't get you today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe not in 10 years, maybe not in 20 years. What if in 30 years, Shaitan has a plan for you. That's really scary. And that just underscores the importance of really being positive and, and focused and self-reflective, like you know, the other surahs, you know, to be like a self, you know, um, self-reflecting, um, self, um, I forget, I know, I forget the Arabic, but you know, the, uh, the, the self-reproaching soul, right? The soul that is always like examining, how am I being? Am I being positive? is I think any little bit of negativity that you let into your life is a seed that is planted. It's a trajectory that is set, that pulls you off the path of goodness and beauty. And that could lead you to that 30-year plan. And as we learned in another surah, time is nothing for God. For us, it feels like you know maybe a week or a month is a long period of time. For God, it's nothing. And if we try to imagine living our lives as if someone is standing before us holding a gun and whatever you do at that moment is gonna be your immediate consequence, you know, that is an important lesson to learn about every single thing that we do and think and feel. Um, and, you know, just, um, I just wanted to share that because the 30 year plan, you know, <laughs> is really, really terrifying. Um, and so just to, you know, I, I think that's a really valuable lesson. Um, and something to keep in, in, in mind. And you know, Allah obviously sees everything, knows everything, knows your, your intentions, and truly the only way I believe that we can ask for um, you know, true, guide, or true protection is, is from trusting in God and, and asking God to, is in the, you know, in the surah from Mu'minun, you know, please keep us, you know, not, or let us not be among the unbelievers or among the evil ones. Um, and uh, you know, Inshallah, may, may Allah help all of us on this journey um, stay on a very, very beautiful you know, path um, that leads us to ultimately to the divine. So thank you so much um, for um, these incredible halakas and you know, may Allah protect everyone who's watching um, and you know, keep your prayers coming because you know, it's, it's still a difficult road here. And um, you know, Sheikh really, um, is incredible again when if you see the amount of suffering and and what it has taken for him to just get himself out of bed to be here with us it is truly miraculous um so we you know we should be nothing but absolutely grateful so alhamdulillah thank you i'm looking forward to an amazing amazing halakha inshallah والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه من تبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين إن شاء الله we will be discussing سورة نوح
which is among the short surah in the Quran, uh, a Meccan surah. But, so, Surah Nuh is um, among the surah that is reported to have been revealed after Surah Al-Kahf, after Surah Al-Nahl, uh, after Al-Ghashiya, um, uh, and then many reports tell us that it was report it was revealed before Surah Al-Mu'minun, before Surah Al-Anbiya, before Surah Ibrahim. Some commentators said that it is a mid, it was revealed in the mid-Meccan period. Uh, other commentators said no, it was towards the later Meccan period. Um, but I think while uh, what gives us a lot of guidance is that Surah Nuh is, inshallah, um, we'll have an opportunity to talk about, but Surat Nuh is, it, it seems to, in all likelihood, that it is not, it, not the mid-Meccan periods that it has a, a rather connect, strong connection with are Surat, Surat Yunus and Surat Hud and Surat Yusuf. And we haven't talked about these Surat yet. Yunus, Hud, Yusuf, but there is a considerable uh, gap between the revelation of Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf, and Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf are mid-Meccan. Then there is a, a, a period of perhaps a year to two years before Surat Nuh is revealed. So if you try to plot out things, and I think it is towards the end of the Meccan, mid-Meccan period, towards the end of the mid-Meccan period, and towards the beginning of the late Meccan period. Um, what is also very interesting about Surat Nuh is that its relationship to the other sword that are named after prophets like Surat Yunus, Surat um, Hud, and Surat Yusuf. Uh, there, these, these four sword, Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf, and Nuh, uh, have a certain thematic unity to them. Uh, which inshallah we'll have an opportunity to talk about. Um, 
that sets, sets them a bit apart from a surah like Surah Ibrahim, named after a prophet, obviously, or much later on, Surah Muhammad, um, or um, Surah Maryam, um, uh, or Surah like uh, Surah Luqman, which is not named after a prophet, but according to at least most that Luqman was not a prophet. And inshallah, as we get to these other surah, Yunus and Hud and Yusuf, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to, to, to refer back to what unites these surah. Um, but for now, let me say that Yunus, Hud, Yusuf, and Luqman uh, get us to focus on our very, our very attitude, our very understanding of um, being a people with a mission and the extent to which living a, a life was a cause, a purposeful life, um, will entail harm. And how to think about this this key issue of suffering and the key issue of harm. And I don't want to jump the gun and, you know, start filling in the gaps too much about uh, Yunus and Hud and Yusuf because they, these are uh, more involved surah. Surah Nuh is revealed after these three and it is short. Um, but, you know, if it would have been useful, in, in, in my humble opinion, if we were talking about Surah Nuh while we had already had uh, Surah Yunus and Hud and Yusuf under our belt. In other words, if we had, had already covered these three surahs, but, you know, that's not what we we ended up with. Um, so, um, inshallah, as we reach these other surah, you know, as need be, I'll be referring back to Surah Nuh, especially in, in, to, to underscore the thematic unity between these surah. According to a lot of reports, the, the order of revelation goes something like Surah and then Surah Nuh, uh, which, if this order is true, then Surah Nuh, in order of revelation, would be something like 70, 71, 72, something like that. And various 
uh, reports say that it was revealed right after, right before Surat Ibrahim. Um, which I mean, it, it, it is interesting in, for many different reasons. But let's first talk about Surat Nuh. Um, and the, the, the succinct message that it has for us. Okay. It starts out with no introductions. The, it, it, it simply jumps into the topic right away. And by the time Surat Nuh is revealed, the story of Nuh has been addressed in several other surahs in the Quran. But like the Quran often does, it, it, the, the Quran takes aspects of the story and focuses on the aspects that are most relevant to the surah that we are dealing with at the time. So even although we, we have Surah Nuh named after the Prophet, Nuh alayhi salam, but there are important aspects of the, the story of Surah Nuh that are not mentioned in Surah Nuh, as we will see, but are actually mentioned elsewhere. Like for instance, um, his, uh, Nuh's son and the drowning of his son, um, or even any details about the flood itself. And Surah, and there is, if you read Surah Nuh in the Bible, the Bible seems to be, whether you accept it or not, it seems to be telling history. It has a historical narrative. But the way that the Quran deals with Surah Nuh and most of the prophetic stories is not for the purpose of documenting history, but it is, there is always the, 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 the narrative of the story is like, cite, it's like citing an issue or citing a narrative to bolster an ethical point. Um, so the narrative is never there for its own purpose. And even the one possible exception to the Surat Yusuf, where the Quran goes into some detail, um, but even there, if you, if you delve into Surat Yusuf, you find that it is whatever aspects of the narrative of Surat Yusuf that is told is always told for an ethical point. Uh, not for the sake of telling history itself. And that's, that's noteworthy because for better or for worse, a lot of the tafsir, traditional tafsir, had a tendency to try to fill in the gaps in sore of prophets like Noah especially Noah and the story of the flood, by um, integrating biblical narratives in the 
marginalia of the Quran. So in other words, as part of what they say, well, you know, the Quran doesn't tell us the full story, but here's what we've learned from this source or that source. Um, and that's sometimes very distracting, and it, it sometimes it, sometimes it 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 takes you off point. In other words, it serves as a digression because it gets you to focus on the historical narrative as to you know what happened factually, rather than why the Quran has the 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 narrative that it does have. In other words, what is the moral point that is being conveyed? So jumping right into the topic, the, the topic itself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, we sent Nuh to his people to warn them before the deluge comes, before the punishment comes. So we know, of course, now in retrospect, that when the Meccans hears this, they, they, they take it as, an, as a threat. It's like, well, if you're telling us that Nuh was warning his people about a coming punishment, are you trying to tell us that there is a similar punishment coming to us? And it's, but that's only as we look at in retrospect at the reaction of Meccans to this type of narrative. But as we know that the, a surah like Surah Nuh, it is not simply speaking to the Meccans, but it is speaking to all the, the, the entire audience of the Quran over the ages and over the centuries. As long as Allah has this earth. And it gets our attention that right away the Quran engages us by saying, we've sent this prophet to tell people about a critical issue. And in short, in one word, the critical issue is consequences. And it doesn't surprise us when the Quran then tells us that Nuh spoke to his people, say, saying, Qala ya qawmi, O my people, with this personalized tone, Ya qawmi, inni lakum nazirun mubin, 
I am here to warn you. I am here to talk to you about precisely that, consequences. We pause, however, for a second because we know that in biblical mythology, which unfortunately influenced a lot of Muslim scholars, in biblical mythology, which unfortunately influenced a lot of scholars, the flood, Nuh's flood, was supposed to cover the entire earth. But Nuh here is saying, Ya Qawmi, my people. And unless the entire earth was empty, except for the Near East, in other words, it, unless the entire world was not populated except for the Near East, then, and some scholars notice this, that, well, when comes to the Prophet Muhammad the Quran says that you are sent to Nasi Kafa, to the to entire humankind. But with the Prophet the Quran never says that he was sent to Nasi Kafa, to all, all human beings. And in fact, in all the places that Nuh is mentioned in the Quran, if you analyze the language, the flood seems to be local, ironically, except for this surah, and we, which we'll see, we'll, we'll talk about how this is so. Except for the way the flood is mentioned in this surah. Now, there's another interesting issue that by the time that Surah Nuh is revealed, the Quran already has told us that Nuh lived a miraculously long life that he lived 950 years. Now, if you've lived 950 years and you speak in terms of Ya Qawmi, that connotes you are anchored in a locality, or a region at least. We don't have any narratives. Allah doesn't tell us that Noah, although having lived so long, circled the earth, or went to all regions of the earth. But, as we will see, this, this long lifespan, Noah's long lifespan, will give rise to some very interesting issues.
So Nuh calls, calls upon his people and he says, worship Allah, revere Allah, وَأَطِعُونَ Listen to me, it's like saying believe me when I tell you that this is precisely what you have to do. يَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ وَيُؤَخِّرْكُمْ إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ مُسَمَّى إِنَّ أَجَلَ اللَّهِ إِذَا جَاءَ لَا يُؤَخَّرْ لَوْ كُنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ So that Allah may forgive your sins and that Allah may bless you and may not bring the consequences of your deeds in the form of a punishment that befalls you. Because if that happens, then there is nothing that could be done Okay, so This of course This raises in, in, in the theological debates rather an interesting point because the Prophet Nuh says Inna ajalallahi idha ja'a la yu'akhar Well, is he saying that if Allah's punishment becomes due so Allah knows that you commit a certain sin and Allah says let's say in your fate Allah says if Ali continues to commit the sin and he commits these sins three times I will allow Ali to be exposed and go to prison but if he commits the sin once and then twice and then repents I will not expose Ali and he will not go to prison. So is he saying that the consequences are like that? Or is he even going beyond this and saying something like, whatever your fate is, including things like the time of death, they're unwavering, unchanging. Now, the reason this became an interesting theological discussion is that there are a lot of ahadiths, um, a lot of ahadiths that say something to the effect that um, that is that asking Allah for forgiveness or that tasadduq uh, that giving um, charity um, or that they prolong a human's life 
And Muslim theologians posited this and said, well, if the date of your death is set in stone and there is no variation, then how could good deeds prolong your life? It's either or. It's either good deeds can prolong your life or... And ultimately, most theologians, the way that they resolved it is that they said, well, Allah can have a date of death under normal circumstance, but if you do X, then the date of death changes accordingly to this. If you do Y, the date of death changes accordingly to this. And that's how most theologians resolved it. And so, in my opinion, though, it is the context of Surah Nuh makes it very clear that what he is talking about are consequences of a lifestyle. He's talking about suffering what Allah's mercy saves us from suffering most of our life, and that is the results of our foolishness and the results of the ways that we do wrong things. He's not talking about, you know, your ajan in terms of your lifespan. Anyway, but, you know, that among the, the interesting debates of tradition. So, Nuh then says, قَالَ رَبِّ إِنِّي دَعَوْتُ قَوْمِي لَيْلًا وَنَهَارًا فَلَمْ يَزِدْهُمْ دُعَائِي إِلَّا فِرَارًا وَإِنِّي كُلَّمَا دَعَوْتُهُمْ لِتَغْفِرَ لَهُمْ جعلوا أصابعهم في آذانهم واستغشوا ثيابهم وأصروا واستكبروا استكبارا ثم إني دعوتهم جهارا ثم إني أعلنت لهم وأسرت لهم إصرارا فقلت استغفروا ربكم إنه كان غفارا This passage is um, the the language is 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 remarkably beautiful and emotional. Whether you know whether in fact these were the words that the, the Prophet Noah uttered or not is not. But what is the, 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 the heart of the matter is, is that Nuh السلام, is complaining to God. Now, I have tried night and day. I have tried, when you say, إِنِّي دَعَوْتُ قَوْمِي لَيْلًا وَنَهَارًا It's like I've tried everything night and day. And all that time and time again 
their response, and again, it's Qawmi, it's not the entire world, but it is the people that Nuh was, was sent to, that their response is they keep running away. Now, Nuh lived 950 years. And the image presented is that for 950 years, some reports say that he became a prophet when he was 40 years old. Other reports, less reliable, say that he became a prophet when he was over 100 years old. But that so he is doing he is carrying a cause and he's not carrying a cause for 10 years or 20 years he's carrying a cause across generations and in fact that multi-generational cause, he is vigilant about this cause from one generation to another. And he keeps conveying and urging the same cause from one generation to another. But it is like anything of old anything that has been there for a long time, what happens when something is there for a long time saying the same thing over and over? It becomes a subject of mythology. And mythology has a remarkable way of pigeonholing and excluding or boxing a narrative into a segmented reality in life. So if it is intergenerational, so people are raising their kids, they say, you know that guy, that Nuh guy, that crazy quack called Noah, you know, as you go about your affairs of life, he's going to tell you X, Y, and Z. Well, here's the deal about this Noah fellow. So, how to penetrate what is the truth comes from old, but because it has been the same truth, calling upon people in the same way, generation after generation, people rebel against it and don't want it. Because it's human nature doesn't change. Humans are often are attracted to what is new 
what is hip, what is happening, what is cool. Why would they want, after the third generation, the fourth generation, the fifth generation, why would they want to hear to this, listen to this man more after their own parents and their grandparents have grown up listening to the same thing and refusing it? And so when Allah tells us, at least Nuh's description, Allah tells us that that in fact every time I go back to them, and and again, Nuh remembers telling us that it's night and day. Their reaction, Janu Asabiahum fi Adanihim was taghshaw thiyabahum wa asarru wa stakbaru stikbara. Their reaction is what you would pretty much expect. They say, we already know what you're going to say and we don't want to listen. So they're, they're plugging their ears. It's like, save yourself the trouble. But then, which is an amazing image. It's, it's like, is when you put your clothes over your head. Now, when you put, like putting a blanket over your head or putting your clothes over your head, what are you doing? You're creating a reality that you can control. So they're saying, we don't want to see other than what we see. We don't want to hear, we don't want to see. And fundamentally, their egos resolve the confrontation between Nuh and these generations. Their egos allow them to look down at this old man, this ageless old man that has been around forever, that keeps saying the same things forever. And hey, you know, someone tells you Allah's punishment is coming and you've been doing something for a hundred years and it hasn't come. Second hundred years, it hasn't come. Third hundred years, 300 years, man, you've been telling us the same thing. It hasn't come. You're crazy. It will never happen. 600 years, it hasn't come. So, when you pay attention to the particulars, things start striking you, and you start understanding why the Quranic narrative is very different than the biblical narrative. The Quranic narrative is not telling you history to entertain you. The Quranic narrative is making a point. And you better pay attention to the point, to the moral point. Because you're not learning history from the Quran. That's not the point.
So, we, 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 we notice this fact, right? And you notice the fact that they have clearly pigeonholed Noah. And it doesn't make a difference whether Noah is talking to them in public forums or is approaching them privately and individually. I have spoken to them both openly in public and I've approached them in a private and direct way. In traditional tafsir, they tell you, oh, the, the, Noah must have had a period where he was preaching the message secretly, like the Prophet Muhammad did, and a period where he was preaching it openly, again, like the Prophet Muhammad did. The problem is, is that we're dealing with a different thing with the Prophet Noah, and that is multi-generations. It doesn't make sense if he's going to go for a, you know, covert period with each generation and then go over it. it, it that doesn't make any sense. Uh, no, lahum means I have talked to them both publicly and privately. I've approached them in every way. And he's telling them something that if you're not paying attention, you miss it. He's telling them something that would in fact rather rub them the wrong way. Because he's telling them Okay, ask God for forgiveness. Even if generation upon generation you're, being do, you're doing the wrong thing. Ask God for forgiveness, he will forgive you. But then he says, so, if you ask God for forgiveness, He will send you rain and wealth. But again, Noah is supposed to have lived for 950 years. Well, Noah. It's been 300 years now, it's been 400 years now, and we're doing just fine. You're telling us that if we go towards God, we will be blessed even on our affairs on this earth. So you're saying there is a punishment that's coming because of your lifestyle and in fact if you fix what is wrong with your society 
you will even attain greater blessings, but we're just fine. I mean, it's been centuries and there's everything you've talked about is not transpiring and is not happening. This this Quranic expression This is 13. The study Quran translates it, what ails you that you do not hope for God with dignity? Um, there is a, a, a fascinating grammatical discussion about this ayah, 13, because depending on, 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 on how you analyze the grammar of this ayah, it is either saying, why is it that you do not seek to dignify or to recognize the the um, to recognize the importance of Allah in your life, or alternatively, why is it that you do not? seek to lead a life that would make you dignified with your Lord. In other words, that would make you of value with your Lord. And a third analysis of the grammatical structure would say, why is it that you do not realize that your dignity lies with your Lord. That in fact, if you want to be dignified, turn to your Lord. Or in order to be dignified, you need to turn to your Lord. Now, there is first about uh, uh, just because this this narrative is often said in the context of Surah Nuh all the time about the issue of istighfar and Nuh salam telling them that if you ask Allah for forgiveness that the blessings in your life would increase. There is a commonly said narrative about Hassan al-Basri, uh, the great early Muslim scholar, that um, Hassan al-Basri taught would teach that if you want Allah's help 
with poverty, if you want Allah's help with illness, if you want Allah's help with all types of problems. Hassan al-Basri said that the best way to do that is to seek istighfar. Because in, 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 it is sins that remove blessings from people. And that saying astaghfirullah is in fact the best dhikr and the best path if you mean it. The best path to Allah answering whatever prayers you have is istighfar. Uh, this is just, I, I remember this is, um, because it's, you know, this, this narrative about Hassan Basri is, is always mentioned in this context. About La Tarzuna Lillahi Waqara, there is a very, there is an interesting report that I read, um, I don't remember exactly where, but it's about Imam Ali, that he was, um, somewhere and he saw people bathing uh, in the nude and without an izar the be in the um, uh, in the pre-modern world um, the, the rich would be, afford to create areas for bathing, but the common folks, um, often bathing, what, the way you would bathe is that you would wear an izar. An izar is like a, 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 um, a, uh, a thin thing that covers your body as you bathe, because there's no privacy. I mean, because you're literally breathing on top of your house or on the street or in the desert where people can. So these people were bathing without an izar and they were completely nude. And what the report about Imam Ali is that he yelled out at them, ما لكم لا ترجون لله وقار. Which is very interesting because then he's telling them, it's not that they're, it's not that they're denying God dignity, obviously, astaghfirullah but rather that why is it that you are not dignifying yourself by doing what would please God. Okay. So, Pause here for a second. Pause here for a second and are as as the surah will will mention. Um, we'll, we'll affirm in a second. I'm, I'm perhaps spending, uh, skipping ahead a little bit, but 
Komunos are people that are that are immersed in a thoroughly materialistic lifestyle. If we try to, you know, if we try to even place them, there, it goes without saying that whatever religious rituals they would have had, they would have involved a great deal of mythology, they would have involved a great deal of magic, there are reports, by the way, in the Islamic tradition about Qawm Nuh and their dealings with jinn and things like that, but, you know, it's, the reliability of these traditions is not um, stellar, so I'm not going to go into it. But that, it, it involve, and, and the religious practices would involve a lot of inequity, because religious practices in so much of human history uh, always privileged the elite and the elite which were often assumed to have some degree of divinity um, in the mystique of power and the alliance between the elite and the clergy, the, 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 the priests of temples, and, um, and the priests of temples would, would often use magic and human sacrifices and other, other sacrifices, and a, a, but ultimately, even the, when people thought about the afterlife for so much of human history, the afterlife was reserved to the elite. So it was the elite that were going to come back to life and that's why you buried them with money, you buried them with food, you buried them with slaves you, and so on because they, but rarely was the, was the afterlife of the commoners discussed. I mean the commoners often if old religious beliefs, the commoners were, did everything to just avoid um, uh, doom. You know, they, 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 they had no hope of actually enjoying anything like what the elite would enjoy, like heaven, but they would just hope that they will not end up um, in Jahim, you know, in, in purgatory, in some form of purgatory. Uh, but the idea that as a commoner, I can enjoy heaven like the Pharaoh or like the, um, you know, the, the, the high class of the empire, that took human centuries to to evolve to that point. I mean, it, 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 people don't, it, people think that it, the modern way of thinking can just be projected back into 
ancient history, and that just uh, it's completely unfounded. Anyway, so it's a highly materialistic, highly classist, highly entitled way of life, and here is Noah. And Noah is constantly coming back and saying these fairly radical things. Your entire priestly class is misguided. Well, if the priestly class is misguided, so, so is the elite is misguided. If, who does the, the, the priestly class service? Who do they legitimate? They legitimate the people in power. And he's doing this for 950 years, generation after generation after generation. And and he's saying things that would be fairly crazy radical because he's telling them that there is one God who's divine, none of you are divine, I am not even divine as a prophet of God, and that all of you, whether you are a nobleman or, or a peasant, you are all going to confront the consequences of your actions, and his people's reaction to him is that he's a crazy old man that keeps saying the same things and has been saying the same things forever. There are a lot of narratives, um, not from the Quran, but again from the, the Sunnah, that Noah was frequently assaulted and beaten. And in fact, some of these narratives are rather interesting because they say, say that Noah would be beaten unconscious and then that they would put him in a bag and tie him up in a bag and then dump him in a, um, a garbage pit and he would come to consciousness and tear himself out of the bag in the garbage pit as a way of insulting him and that this would be done by young kids so that parents raise their kids well this is this old man is a joke you know feel free to assault him and they would go out of their way to humiliate him and insult him okay and what Noah is urging his people to do is Again, that same thing of reflecting upon what is intuitive to human nature. Intuitive to human nature, not what is conveyed to them by their priestly class or by their noble class or their elite what is that is, is what is intuitive 
So why is that intuitive? And the Quran in Surah Muh comes and says, well, that if you reflect upon the miracle of creation itself, and that all of you go through the same stages of being created. Some modern Muslims, of course, said Khalaqa is proof that the Quran supports an evolutionary theory of creation. I mean, that's, okay, fine, if, if that's what you want to argue, but it's not that I oppose it, but Khalaqa the point is, is that whether you are rich or poor, whether you are high or low, you are all created through the same stages of creation from a clot to this to that and so on. And that Allah created seven heavens or seven pathways that in other words you look at the heavens and it is and al qamara fihinna nura shamsa siraja Siraj is something that emits light. Fihinna nur is something that reflects light. And this is, as modern Muslims have again been pointed as those who write about the scientific miracles of the Quran, that is remarkably precise because it says that the sun, the sun actually produces light and the sun and the moon just reflects light. It doesn't produce it. And it is remarkable because the language is, is you know, that took us centuries to um, to do, uh, to to realize or to learn. Now, in in especially in the Sufi tradition, which understand a lot of these things metaphorically, um, on this point. Especially, they they usually say that it is the qamar here is a metaphor for the truth of tawhid. Um, at tawhid al-burhani, as they they call it, the truth of tawhid, while the shams is a metaphor for the truth of knowledge. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to emphasize the, the, the Sufi-esque approach with Surat Nuh um, for a variety of reasons, but I mean, it, the, 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 the way that well, anyway, I'll tie it in a, a bit later, so I don't lose my, my train of thought. Okay. And Allah initially creates you from the soil, and when you die, you disintegrate, you go back, you go back to the basic elements of the soil that Allah ambatakum min al-ardi imbata, and in the same way that you de decompose and you return to the soil, that you will be resurrected from the soil. And that Allah facilitated 
جعل لكم جعل لكم الارض بساطا لتسلكوا منها سبلا فجاجا so that you know, Allah, the way the earth has been set up to accommodate human life so what the sum of what Nuh is, is saying السلام, is as the um, scholars would, would usually put it is قياس الغيب على الشهادة والمعقول على المحسوس والمستقبل على الماضي So in other words, what he's blaming them for is the failure to reason on the basis of what? On the basis of there is a ghaib, there is the unknown. Well, how do you know anything about the unknown? Well, the argument from a, from a believer perspective, from the perspective of faith, is that you analyze what you do know to make educated guesses about what you don't know. And if you analyze what you do know, you see the, the, the sky, the way it's built, you see the earth, the way it's made, you see the, 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 the way human beings, then you would reach levels of enlightenment about what should and what should not. And in terms of knowing what's acceptable, what's right or what's wrong, you analyze, again, sunnatullah fil khalq, you analyze Allah's sunnah in creation. And you see that Allah creates all human beings in the same way that they're all human. That Allah doesn't create someone royalty and someone not royalty. That Allah creates all people with the same desires, the same fears, the same wants, etc., etc. And again, that would become a great educator in your life. And that if you want to understand the future, you have to study the past. And the best thing I've read about this is that if you, your past has taught you that you are century after century leaving, living in unjust societies, with deep-seated inequities. The families that are rich in the first century are the same families that are rich in the second century, the same families that are rich in the third century. The elite remain the elite, and the elite always oppress those who are below them. Then, this should tell you something. Something needs to change for the nature of injustice to change. You can't keep doing the same thing and believing that, well, somehow 
you're going to attain justice, or you're going to attain morality, or you're going to attain a good life. So, but just uh, the, this um, narrative about Imam Ali radiallahu when he sees the uh, people bathing and he says, "Malakum la lillahi baqara." It's actually, it's really a beautiful way of um, of approaching the issue of, um, I mean, approaching the whole, uh, the, the whole question of public sin. Um, it's, um, it's like, um, it's like calling for a public morality by which you, you dignify the self by recognizing God's place in public spaces. And uh, so, I mean, when, when you see, and it really is, when you see Muslims doing things um, like wearing revealing clothes or uh, you know, doing things that are not are not becoming of a Muslim. Uh, it, it's really that that, that in Quranic expression really perfectly fits it, and it comes to mind in a very powerful way. It's like um, the the problem is is that you are deprecating the role of the divine authority in our public spaces. And I think that's, that's a, I think a very uh, rich and, and, and layered way of, of approaching the issue of public sense. Okay, so then, قَالَ نُوحٌ رَبِّي إِنَّهُمْ عَصُونِي وَاتَّبَعُوا مَنْ لَمْ يَزِدْهُ مَالُهُ وَوَلَدُهُ إِلَّا خَسَارًا وَمَكَرُوا مَكْرًا كُبَّارًا وَقَالُوا لَا تَذَرُنَّ آلِهَتْكُمْ وَلَا تَذَرُنَّ وَدَّا وَلَا سَوَاعًا وَلَا يَغُوثَ وَيَعُوقَ وَنَسْرًا وَقَدْ أَضَلُّوا كَثِيرًا وَلَا تَزِدِ الظَّالِمِينَ إِلَّا ضَلَالًا here, Noah, in supplicating Allah, is pointing to this fact that we we were talking about that ultimately in rejecting Noah's message, they focused on what we would called today centers of power. Those who So they ultimately their commitment and where they got their values and they got their their uh, uh, they got their values and they got their their mores and their their 
their sense of right and wrong were those people who had money and walad is symbolic of power. The money and children meaning power. And, and they, so their, their approach or their reaction was to stick to their known systems of knowledge or, and systems of, of their, their style of life, regardless of how much injustice is involved. وَمَكَرُ وَمَكَرًا كُبَّارًا This uh, 22 that... The study Quran translates it as... And they devised a mighty plot. This is the, the usually where you get the all the comments and the traditions about the mistreatment that Nuh endured um, at the hands of his people. And so that when you say that they, in fact, as we said, Al-Makr is not necessarily devising a stealthy plot. That's not a makr. A makr is the 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 um, the way that you handle affairs. And so Noah is complaining to God that the way they handled me is was ultimately vile, very wrongful. And they stick to their gods. Now, there is a lot of, um, a lot in traditional sources that is written about the names of these gods, Wudda, Wasawa'a, Wayaghus, Wayawuk, Wanasra. So you have on the one hand in traditional sources a lot that's written about them most of it is historically unverifiable. So, you know, whether uh, Wudda and Sawa'a, Wayaghus, Wayaghuq, Wanasra, as a lot of the traditional sources claim that these were the names of people who were, when they were alive, they were pious, good, religious people, and when they died, they created statutes to honor them, and then eventually they started worshiping the statutes. Um, it, it's historically not verifiable. And in fact, some of it is hard to accept because, for instance, we know that Nasra was in the form of an eagle, um, a deity in the form of an eagle. So, you know, it's not, it wasn't built in, to commemorate the human form of an, of, um, and anyway, and so the historical record is just absent. The other thing is that so, some Sufi traditions, they give Wudda, Osawa'a, Wayaghus, Wayaghuq, Wanasra metaphorical meanings, but there is no correlation 
between what they say, for instance, Nisra means or Ya'uk means. Um, so they, they'll say something like, um, um, how do I put it? For, for instance, so they might say Ya'uk means um, sexual appetite. It's a metaphor for sexual appetite. But there's no connection. Where, where are you getting this from? Where are you getting that Ya'uq is a metaphor for sexual appetite? They're the names of old deities. And why the Quran preserves the names of these old deities, in my view, because these were, in fact, the names of ancient deities outside of Mecca that were worshipped. Now, if we had anything in the field of Quranic studies like we have, you know, there's a whole field of uh, biblical archaeology. It's a very big field. Archaeology that is big. But there's nothing like it in the Islamic world. Um, I mean, it would have been very interesting to try to actually place where Nuh would could have been on the basis of tracking back the names of these deities and where they were worshipped, but nothing like that um, exists in the in the modern Muslim world. Okay. وَقَدْ أَضَلُّوا كَثِيرًا وَلَا تَزِدِ الظَّالِمِينَ إِلَّا ضَلَالًا This is 24. Many indeed have they led astray and it increases the wrongdoers in naught but error. There is an, in, in tafsir. there is usually a debate about what the it refers to. Yes, the deities have led many astray. But when it says, What is the it refers to? It leads the un, and it only increases the injustice of the unjust. Or it only makes the unjust more astray. And there is a very interesting discussions about this whether the it refers to the ego, the it refers to the corrupt practices of the elite, whether the it refers to the entire social structure that perpetuates, or in my view, it refers to all of them. Okay. Then, فَأُدْخِلُوا نَارًا فَلَمْ يَجِدُوا لَهُمْ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ أَنْصَارًا So Allah ultimately gets to the point and says what befell these people which we know from elsewhere and even here is allusion to it is that they sink or they, they are flooded they drown. It is a direct result of their misdeeds. Okay. Then 
after that interjection about the punishment, the Quran comes back and says that وَقَالَ نُوحٌ رَبِّي لَا تَذَرْ لَا تَذَرْ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ مِنْ الْكَافِرِينَ ضَيَّارًا إِنَّكَ إِنْ تَذَرْهُمْ يُضِلُّوا عِبَادَكَ وَلَا يَلِدُوا إِلَّا فَاجِرًا كَفَّارًا رَبِّ اغْفِرْ لِي وَلِوَالِدَيْ وَلِمَنْ دَخَلَ بَيْتِي مُؤْمِنًا وَلِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ وَلَا تَزِدِ الظَّالِمِينَ إِلَّا تَبَارًا So the Quran interjects and tells us that they suffered as a punishment the consequences of their actions. What you would expect is the Quran will tell us about this punishment at the end of the narrative. But here the Quran interjects this and then it tells us something else about what Nuh said. And it tells us what Nuh said is Allah punish them for their inequities and for their kuf. Now, notice here, وَقَالَ نُوحٌ رَبِّي لَا تَظَرْ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ مِنَ الْكَافِرِينَ ضَيَّارًا This is 26. So, 26 Noah said, My Lord, leave not a single disbeliever to dwell upon the earth. The way that it is translated is precisely the reason for the confusion between the biblical tradition and the Islamic tradition. Everywhere where the flood is mentioned in the Quran, it is not mentioned as a global event, but as a local event, except here. But notice that here, it is not Allah telling us what actually happened. It is Allah telling us about what Noah said. Now, Noah lived in a part of the earth, and as far as he, we don't know, we're not told anywhere that Noah sailed anywhere or traveled great distances. So as far as he could have been concerned, where he lived is where the human population was. So that dua, as some theologians that I agree with have noted, that dua is not proof. That the, that, the, that the biblical narrative is correct, that the flood covered the entire earth. All it says is, God punished all of them. But Allah is not telling us that, I, in fact, I flooded the entire earth. And it would be inconsistent with so much as we'll talk about in a second, for, to, for God to do so. Then Noah does, says another thing, which is very interesting. That, and this is here now, 27. If you leave them, they will mislead 
your servants and will beget not but disbelieving profligates. So, if you leave them, you are leaving bad people who are going to lead so many astray and the generations that they will bring to the world will be horrible generations. Because, as I keep saying, our ancestors took the Quran far more seriously than we do, our ancestors actually paused at this. Why did they pause at this? Because they thought, well, wait. How can Noah say that, how can Noah make such a bold statement that their progeny, whatever comes out of them, will be horrible people? And in response, you had two camps. The first camp said, well, because while as a rule, the Prophet Muhammad would never make a dua like this, because he would never say, these evil people will only beget evil people. That's something in Allah's knowledge. We don't have that type of authority. But because Nuh lived so long among his people for 950 years, he saw the dynamic where the children are reared with values that have gone hopelessly wrong. And so it is not that Allah is saying that what Nuh is claiming is true. But Allah is saying that what Nuh believed validated the punishment is that nothing is going to go right with these people. They, they raise their children on all the wrong things. The second school of thought represented by people like Ibn Arabi, Ibn Arabi and Qushayri and others said that Nuh's dua or Nuh's claim was indeed wrong. And that when Nuh prays for Ghufran, he's praying for Allah to forgive him for transgressing the bounds of saying the children are, will, will be X, Y, and Z. For Ibn Arabi and for people like Qushiri, because they go back to the issue of fitrah, and they say the fitrah of, of all is the fitrah of Islam. And so although people could be awfully corrupt, their children is still born on the fitrah of Islam. Now, of course, I, you know, this is 
Allah is saying that this is a dua that, or this is what Nuh said, alayhi salam. But we don't need to resolve the debate. I mean, to say it makes sense to me if Nuh is saying, you know, the whole process of socialization is has made these people, after this long period of time that I've lived with them, it's clear that there's just no way they're going to correct course. And that dua, Rabbi forgive me, Wali Walidai and my parents, in the Islamic traditions, there are many traditions that in, in, from the Prophet were attributed to the Prophet, in which the Prophet says, that the parents of Nuh were actually believers, and that's why the dua. Um, I mean, the, we, there is a b debate about the authenticity of these traditions. Remember that in Nuh's household, there were, his wife was not a believer and his son was not a believer. So he's saying, not everyone in my house deserves forgiveness but only those who, in my household who were believers. So when they study Quran, let's see how they translated it. Study Quran, forgive me and my parents and who enters, whoever enters my house as a believer. That, that's the reason for that dua, that his son entered his house and his wife entered his house, but they were not believers. Um, and Believing men and women, and the deserve of the wrongdoers is ruin. Okay, so let's pause for a second now. Surat Nuh seems like it's. not communicating anything that we don't already know. But pause for a second. If this man, as the Quran says, lived 950 years, and he continued to try with his people for 950 years, or, you know, at least until the flood, because he's supposed to have lived only 50 years after the flood. So let's say 900 years, or let's say 800 years, because let's say he started being a prophet when he was 40. And during this whole time, Remember, people are living and dying, but during this whole time, by the time he gets to the, the ship that he builds, most reports that say, some say that there were 40 men and 40 women, some say there were 20 men, 20 women, some say they increased the number a bit to 100, me, Allahu alam. But for the long span of time, it's a very small group of people. And in Surah Nuh, 
Not, not, we're not told anything other than we've drowned him. But we're not told about building the ship, we're not told about his son, we're not told about his wife, we're only told about the fact that he approached him night and day and that despite the fact that he approached him night and day with absolute determination. Now, if he is in fact preaching to his people for this long, centuries long, we normally think of the prophet that symbolizes patience as Ayyub salam, the prophet who is afflicted with illness. But Surah Nuh actually makes us think that the prophet who symbolizes patience and perseverance and endurance is Nuh. Can you imagine preaching a message for centuries? And then it gets you to reflect upon another reality. We talk about, and of course remember that we've dealt with things like Surah Al-Kahf um, before we've dealt with Surah Nuh. But God's time and human time, if you have someone warning about consequences and they don't materialize for centuries, it is very natural for human beings to say, he's crazy. And there's no truth to what he claims. Because in fact, the biggest cause of defeat for all moral causes is that those who believe in the moral cause are defeated by material reality. They keep waiting for things that they believe ought to happen to happen and they don't happen and they give up and they say, well, it must be that our ideas are wrong. Well, if Muslims are going to carry that defeatist attitude at the beginning of the Islamic message, there is no point. Defeated people cannot change history. People with this defeatist attitude easily compromise, easily sell out, easily give up on their principles and their morals and their ethics. They get tired. Well, you know, nothing has changed now and it's been 100 years. Nothing has changed now and it's been 200 years. Nothing has changed and it's been 300 years. Surah Nuh comes to deal with the heart of that issue. And you'll see, inshallah, when we talk about Yunus and Hud, that all these surah are dealing with the same problematic. 
And at the same time that we are given an, a glimpse into Noah's very human reaction when he says, you know, basically, okay, punish them. You know, no good will come out of them. But do you notice that all of Noah's complaints in Surah Noah are not about his own internal, his own suffering, but about what he believes is happening to the cause. So you're not, you, there is not even a hint of a victim complaining about his role as a victim in this narrative. So even when he says, لم يزده ماله وولده إلا خسارة. So he's talking about their elite. He's complaining about their elite and how their elite are are obstinate. But he says what? Their elite continue to be losers. He doesn't say their elite have oppressed me. ومكروا مكرا كبارا. And they. He doesn't complain about being beaten and thrown in garbage cans and things like that, but he complains about how they did everything possible to continue preserving their norms, their, their way of living, and completely have, as Surah Noah says, have blocked their ears and have have isolated themselves from seeing any reality but the reality that serves their lifestyle. So, a remarkable, although, although an exaggerated but a remarkable example of persevering for a cause. To put it simply, who amongst us would say, yeah, I would persevere for centuries? But it's the message that was clearly understood you know, there are people who, who embrace a cause, but they embrace the cause fundamentally when all is said and done because they believe it promotes them. It gives them a purpose in life. It gives them a meaning. It is not because they truly believe in that. The cause is tied, intimately tied into their own self-interest. And so when the cause is not translating into, into the propagation of their self-interest, they give up, they tire. And then there are those who believe, because, and 
it is clear in Surah Nuh, coming at the time that it came, like Surah Hud, like Surah Yusuf, like Surah Ayyub, that the Quran was speaking to Muslims and saying, you know, this stage, those of you who are going to be embracing because you think you can be the new elite in a new state, we don't need you. You're on the wrong boat. Final point, because it's really important in the Islamic tradition, and it comes again from the very rich spiritual tradition of Sufis, but, but not exclusively so. Sufis had a clear tendency to interpret the entire story of Nuh as the coming flood in your life. Their narratives consistently speak about Allah gives you a grace period throughout your life. Allah, you commit a lot of sins. Allah covers them up, conceals them. Allah constantly intervenes to save you from the consequences of your follies. But that for the majority of people, not, not those who are on the path of Urtqaq, not on the post, those on the path of elevation, but for the majority of people, materialism and the demands of life and the concerns of life, it, it, it builds up as if water building up for a coming flood. And that flood comes at a point in life when the dreams of youth is, are gone. So, you know, when you're young, you're still dreaming that your life is going to be X, Y, Z. But then you reach an age where, okay, you know, now you, you're in, in the career, whatever career you're in, you're, 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 you've experienced all the, the, you know, the disappointments of life have come, whatever. What we, in our modern language, we call a mid, midlife crisis. You know, a lot of what the Sufi, when you read what the Sufi texts are describing, they sound like a midlife crisis, to be quite honest. And that, at that point, you, you're like, okay, you know, where, where, where are all the things that I used to dream of, all the hopes, all the this, all the that, and that at that point, there is like a flood because you feel restless, you feel aggrieved, you feel embittered, you feel 
hurt, you feel disappointed, and that flood, unless you've built Noah's Ark in your soul, it will ultimately lead you astray. You, you will not come back. So in Sufi literature, they talk a lot about the building of Noah's Ark. They take from this entire metaphor that every individual must think very carefully about the life-saving boat they'll get on after life has dealt all its disappointments. And it's a beautiful imagery. I mean, it's a beautiful imagery, and I wish, again, when, when, when it became a battle between Sufism versus non-Sufism, we've lost a lot because there are whole genres of literature that we stopped reading and we stopped teaching. But it is, it's, a, it's like psychology and it's a coping mechanism and it's a, it's a way of saying, um, you know, just because you think so much has been submerged underwater in your life. You know, you, 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 um, you're not happy with your career, you're not happy with who you married, you're not happy with uh, your ch the way your children turned out, you're not happy with uh, the fact that you're bald, you're not happy with the fact that you uh, have a big belly, that, whatever. It doesn't mean that you need to drown. There's Noah's Ark. Um, again, I, I, you know, fantasize. Can you imagine if our teachers were competent enough, qualified enough, educated enough to teach our children this material in schools? Um, the type of Islam we would have and how we would perhaps avoid our children or us or all of us be feeling so defeated because we don't know the richness of our tradition and the beauty of our culture and uh, the amazing nuance that we've generated. Um, I think that's it. Um, I can't remember anything else. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Okay, that's Surah Muhammad. Alhamdulillah. Again, that was absolutely amazing. Um, let me start by asking you what the dhikr is for the Surah. It's the last verse. Okay, it's the last verse. So, verse 28. Um, 
It's, I, it always strikes me how when you say that, um, you know, obviously uh, previous generations of Muslims took um, the Quran so much more seriously and then you always proceed to point out something that people gloss over and don't think about. And I think also the, the, the thing that's amazing is when, you know, it's clear like when you read these, you've taken the time to sit and reflect on what was it like to be in Noah's shoes and frustrated and, you know, upset. And the point that you made about how when we usually think of examples of patience, we think of Prophet Ayub, but not Noah, who was there for 950 years yeah. calling upon people. It seems like such an obvious point, hidden in plain sight. So just a, a, a good example of, I mean, just so many things that you pointed out. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much again for an incredible surah. Um, I know Rami has not been able to sit down because he has a question, <laughs> so we'll let you lead. Thank you. you. We just had to turn off the cameras for a reason or not. Um, my first, it's not really a question, it's just whether you want to make a comment on this for purposes of the tafsir was you know, Ibn Ajibah, he talks about how the issue of the drowning of the miners, like, troubled basically oh, yeah. which is an interesting point of how they try to reconcile that. So, yeah. that doesn't yeah. count as a question, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's a reminder. <laughs> okay. Um, my other question was, well, uh, 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 one of them is you mentioned that, okay, why... Why is the flood mentioned before Nuh's du'a? And I don't, I don't know if you, you answered that or if I missed the, the answer. Um, so if you could um, just explain the reason for that order. And then the other one is, um, I mean, on the one hand, okay, so it, in the very beginning of the surah, Nuh is warning of um, consequences. Is the warning there, does he know about the flood, or is it just the general teaching that the prophets kind of come with? And then the dua, he essentially, you know, asks Allah to, you know, be done with them. Um, the, so, on the one hand, Nuh's story is about perseverance and patience and, you know, just no, no matter how many times and how many generations are going to keep rejecting you, you continue to preach the path. And then, you know, but at the end, he does ultimately make a dua against them and says, you know, it's, it's hopeless. Um, so, but he doesn't know whether Allah is going to answer that dua. So in that sense, is making the dua is it um, is it uh, is is it him saying okay I'm done with this or is it him saying yeah Allah I see no hope in this and you know but if you don't answer my prayer I'm still going to keep going yeah um, okay so uh, Okay, so the first uh, the issue of um, why the 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 flood is mentioned before um, 
the Dua of Nuh. Um, and that is the um, to separate the to avoid confusing Noah's dua with Allah's will. That it is Noah's belief that if they are not destroyed or that um, uh, Allah will not be worshipped on, on the land. Uh, but we never get a verification, a divine verification of this belief or, if, uh, uh, or validation of this belief. And so that's why the, the, the punishment itself is mentioned first. Um, and it is clear that because the Quran itself doesn't tell us at what point um, in Noah's long, long life does he start uh, making, calling upon their destruction. Um, and in fact, some uh, commentators say that Noah doesn't start making this type of prayer until Allah says that they, they, they're done for. And so that basically Noah is at that point just succumbs to or accepts that this is the fate. And his dua is an affirmation of that. But I think in Surah Nuh itself, the, the structure of the surah, um, it's clear that even that if uh, Nuh has no choice but to continue doing, because it doesn't tell us that Allah answered his dua. It just tells us that there are consequences and that Noah says that he continued to pray for them night and day, and uh, or to continue to to uh, 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 invite them or, or to to to, in, uh, to to call upon them night and day um, to no avail, and that finally Noah um, accepts the, the their fate, but it doesn't tell us that. Allah answers Nuh's dua. Um, so it's clear that in, in, there is no choice, uh, even after this long life, that for Nuh to do. But if I mean, it's up to Allah whether the flood is going to come or not. There is a an interesting theological discussion that has to do with the Prophet Muhammad والسلام, in the context of Nuhsa'ah. And that is, um, and this is sort of not very 
it's not popularly known. Um, and this has to do with, there's a point in which the Prophet Muhammad um, prays that Allah uh, punishes Quraysh for its misdeeds. And, and there are number of commentators, I don't remember if Ibn Ajib is one of them, but um, a number of commentators that said that Allah comes and chides the Prophet for that dua, and he says that effectively Allah instructs the Prophet not to pray against Quraysh, that to, uh, to pray for their huda, that to pray for their guidance, not for their punishment. And that the and that the the they tie this to the whole issue of Nuh's dua and that is usually when they say that Nuh's dua was um uh, a, a either came only after Allah told Nuh that they're going to be destroyed or that in fact as Ibn Arabi says that was an error that he shouldn't have said that the progeny would be this you know that nothing good is going to come out of them um but that's 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 uh you know inshallah we'll get to this um to this verse and the whole debate about this um so it is often tied into whether um, whether, in fact, the Prophet, والسلام, Prophet Muhammad is instructed to only pray for their guidance, but never to pray for their, their destruction. Um, the whole issue about, yeah, this is, uh, the, the, there's a question about the, the, their children that Rami was alluding to. Um, and again, this goes back to our ancestors taking the Quran far more seriously than we do. And that is the as the, the our ancestors as they were reading the Quran, they were troubled by the the flood the punishment in that they thought, well, if they're going to be punished with the flood that means that their children are going to be killed as well. And to them, that presented a problem. So you're going to punish the, all these generations of obstinate and defiant people, but the children are going to, um, who are, are too young to have made a decision one way or the other, they're going to be drowned as well. And so some of them said, citing a, a report attributed to the Prophet that um, 40 years or some, according to another version of the same report, 70 years before 
the the flood, Allah made them all. Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, barren. Huh? Barren. Barren. Made them all barren, so they they, they they no longer had any children. So by the time the flood comes, there are no children. So that was one solution. The uh, others said, no. As often happens with children, is that they they are rewarded in the hereafter. Basically, that they rejected the the barren reports, but said that they died without torment, that their death was swift, and then that Allah handles the the fate of children. Uh, of course, I mean that presented it's what's interesting in this the whole dynamic is the fact that these were thinking people reading the Quran. You know, there were people who were, and they weren't afraid to ask difficult ethical questions, like, well, how about the children? Um, you know, okay, so you're building a boat, you're going to take the believers and their children, but the people who are not believers they're go, not going to allow their children to get on the boat, and you have no authority to bring their children on the boat. But that means these innocent children will die. And But that presented the whole issue of innocence, and that's why those who rejected the barren reports said, well, no, that, that's, a, you know, that, that's not a solution, that, because children suffer um, the consequences of their parents' decisions all the time. And we just have to accept that Allah rewards children in the, in the hereafter for the injustice that they played no role in. Um, but that, that's basically what this whole thing, and, and interestingly that same debate arises with every, every time the issue of mass punishment comes up um, in, in the Quran. They, uh, I mean, they were not I, I imagine if the same question was raised in the modern age, um, you know, it, we we would deal with it with 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 um, we would deal with it, you know, irrationally instead of saying, well, okay, yeah, you're presenting a valid moral question. Um, but yeah, the, the, the tradition is replete with that. And again, I want to say that the, the problem is the tradition has become accessible to a lot of people in the modern age because a lot of these books now are on the net. But learning, knowing how to read books from a different historical period requires skill. It either requires good teachers or requires that you be trained in reading it because not everyone can read uh, books from texts from other historical periods and, and get what they're saying or understand the significance of phrases and style and method of narrative and so on. So it's so fascinating that this is coming after Sultan because it, it reminded me of the parts that say they will, when they'll be punished because their injustice made it more difficult for the path 
for the believers. So no. thematically, it's it's very similar, especially at the end. Um, hmm. yeah. And my question is in regards to Fitra, that this, and also tied into um, Nuh's dua at the end, because I didn't really read it as, when, when you were talking about it, I didn't look at it so much as like he was hoping for their punishment, but it was a realization that them continuing to see success in the way that they want to see success was keeping them locked in their behavior patterns and allowing them to to keep existing in, in this very unjust way. So in a, in a way, it's like, I mean, there's so many times in my life where it is the bad experiences or the painful experiences or the things that I might, because it's painful, I'm like, oh, Allah is punishing me that wake me up to something new mm -hmm. that, that shake me out of you know my delusion or, or whatever the, the injustice that I'm committing is and so is, is the fitra of when like Ibn Arabi and, and all of these scholars from the past when they say that the fitra of Islam is, is what they're getting at that all of us are essentially created to worship Allah and we come out worshiping Allah and it's not that we necessarily stop worshiping one thing or another it's that we just stop worshiping Allah and we start worshiping something else so yeah. the, the people of North's people they started worshiping power and worshiping you know whatever it, it is and you know we tend to it's like you if you raise a child where success and material and and class is emphasized with them that is ultimately through their actions even if you know they're saying that they will the way that they live will be worshiping success and that will become it will always conflict with their decisions to worship towards Allah so can you expand a little bit on on fitra and well first let me just be um, the the whole, the whole, um, uh, the whole debate, it, it, just to, because I agree with you that I don't necessarily understand what Noah says as a dua uh, more than his. Um, his sort of understanding of why this punishment became um, necessary. إِنَّكَ إِن تَظَرْهُمْ يُضِلُّوا عِبَادَكَ وَلَا يَلِدُوا إِلَّا فَاجِرًا كَفَّارًا So, what troubled people, what troubled people like Ibn Arabi is precisely this expression. وَلَا يَلِدُوا إِلَّا فَاجِرًا كَفَّارًا which translates into and they will not give birth except to um, a bad kafir like fajr is someone who's inequitous someone who's corrupt and a kafir and 
for Ibn Arabi and, and the others who agreed with him, it's like, well, how do you know that? How, do you, how can you say that they're not going to give birth except to a person? Those who said, disagreed said basically that, no, he, he's, he's saying that the way that they socialize their children is, is going to overcome any good propensities that they have. And that it's not that he is saying that uh, God cannot, it cannot be otherwise. He's just saying that I understand why this fate is necessary. Of course, the other part that becomes key in this whole debate um, 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 we're, 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 I'm just checking if I can find it, but anyway. If not, okay, he doesn't have it. Okay, so the, uh, is the, uh, these Norse, um, That what sounds like a supplication about that don't allow, don't eradicate all that remains of them on earth. Um, and many theologians were troubled by that dua because we know that that the Prophet you know, says I, I was not sent as as a as a uh, the, the, or the instruction of the Quran clearly to the Prophet Muhammad is that you, you pray for their guidance, you don't pray for their destruction. Some, of course, said, well, you know, each Prophet has their own minhaj. But this issue of fitrah is, uh, is sort of a, um, Because what you're raising with the issue of Futra is, is a bit different. The belief is all of us are created with a Futra to worship God. But that clarity becomes quickly diverted because of socialization, because of cultural factors, because of um, wrong systems of feedback, education, and to cut to the, to the core point is that people like Anarmi very much believe that you will, if you don't, those who do not worship God, When all is said and done, they end up worshiping either a false god or quite often a false god in form of worshiping themselves. And so the, the corrective measure, and this is by the way very common in, in Sufi thinking, that is that you get a person to understand that 
self-worship is entirely insane. That it is, it is the most irrational thing a human being does. Because self-worship is entirely illogical because it is, it, it rides on a sense of consciousness as if the world existed upon your birth and that as if the world will end upon your death. And self-worship completely does not take into account resurrection. And what self-worship means effectively is either it takes the form of saying there is no God and I only take what I know to be right or wrong from myself or self-worship takes the form of there is a God, but I project whatever I am unto God. So, it, it, yeah, you know, you could tell me whatever you want to tell me, and I will pretend to listen, or I will listen to an extent or whatever, but ultimately, the, this, the, what, what is the ultimate boss in when all said and done is how I feel. So, when you talk about any process of irtiqa, what is it? What is the thing that they always start? They start with the old, every Sufi tariqah that I've ever read about, or even non-Sufis, to be for that matter, because even those who have a spiritual orientation but not Sufi necessarily, is to to teach you that to transfer sovereignty from the self to God, which means that to deny that constant inclination that comes to say, I feel so it is. And to say that the world is far more nuanced than that. And right and wrong is, is, is belong to it. So, you know, if you come from the, the rational, the philosophical orientations, you know, they say, well, you discipline self-idolatry through reason. If you come from Sufi orientation, you discipline self-idolatry by mujahadat al-nafs and, and, you know, shrinking the ego so that the ego doesn't keep intervening and so on. If you come from an Asuri orientation, you say, well, it's really, you know, a combination of both Mujahedat al-Nafs and reason. That you learn that there are certain things where reason has to be supreme and other things where uh, you have to rely on either methodology or textual principles or, you know, so, but all, all of it, it like the biggest pitfall that ruins pitfall, uh, uh, um, is self-idolatry. That ultimately we take the easy route out and say, you know, 
I feel it, so it is. this is sort of the same question or if there is just from a different angle so I'm going to read it and, um, when discussing the messages delivered by past prophets or even the way for example that Imam Ali addressed those who bathed in the nude publicly it seems that their message and messaging speaks to something intuitive and not just a well-reasoned appeal of believing in God or to be God conscious how do you appeal to that intuition if it is not regularly regularly relied upon for guidance? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the question um, points to, like, if you see people nude bathing, right, and, and they're nude in public, and you say uh, something, Malakum Lutafuna it is relying on a level of intuition in that you think about, okay, I, I am not worrying about what the rules of propriety or what is intuitively known to be modesty in society and so the question is really, well, what if you live in a society that um, is um, like a poem loot, um, where it's all gone, you know, it, it just, it, it, the most basic elements are lost. And so to tell them, you know, don't you have, you know, feel some shame this 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 is this is not becoming of you uh this is not consistent with dignity will mean nothing to them because they've deteriorated to the point that they've become like you know became become barbaric effectively um and that's where it um it becomes much harder and i'm and you need the building blocks cannot start from if people have lost their sense of shame you can't start by saying let me tell you about god by first teaching you about the rules of modesty you you need to get to the core again you need to get to the heart of the issue so and that is you know it's like people who try to approach Islam by first, the first thing they talk about when they talk to someone about Islam is, is hijab. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's as Sheikh Ghazali used to say, it's approaching Islam from its tail, but it's really approaching a, a, a message from its tail. You, you have the heart, the core of the matter, is belief in Allah and our attitude towards existence. And the core of the matter is accountability. And the core issues of a justice as 
the, the pulse of existence. And then from that, you know, you, you but um, it, you know, I am, I mean, th this is the, of course a bigger issue of approaching how you approach the Sira and but it, it's very striking for me that while Imam Ali could be in Arabia and he would say something like what he said, uh, but the companions, when they went to other parts of the world that did not share these types of basic values, that's not the language they spoke at all. And, you know, we had visitors to to areas that had become formally Muslim or but their cultures remained unchanged for a very long time. So it, it was a, a, an incremental process of Islamization. Um, it, it wasn't the way that people believe that the law can produce Islamicity. Uh, the, the law can it's a, the law is a very artificial way of inducing legality. You know, that, that's, people who study legal philosophy will understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a huge difference between legality and law. Last call. <laughs> All right, actually, um, wait, I'm going to share. Hold on a second. Uh, just uh, thank you, Hadet, for uh, she shared a lot of her reflections, and so I'm just going to read them in case you want to comment on anything. Um, Assalamu alaikum, thank you so much for this amazing halakha. There's so much to reflect on. I have more comments than questions. I found verses 11 and 12 interesting. If taken literally, they seem to be about materialism and we now know that the people of Noah were materialistic. I wonder if God was addressing their fear of material loss. Secondly, I was remembering the story of the man who had abundance in Surah Al-Kaf and then lost everything resulting in him regretting his ingratitude. And then third, the Quran tells us that the prophets oftentimes told their people that God will forgive them of their sins, and these people may not have even been believers. I wonder how many people in our society today would be drawn to that desire to be forgiven of their sins. It makes me think that the psychology of people throughout history has changed so much. There's so much to reflect on, many thanks to us, and um, you're always in our prayers. Thank you, Huda. Um, uh that the the um, um, the, um, the the first point the, the um, oh about materialism yeah I mean they they uh, there is the people of North were materialistic but you know what is very uh, uh, interesting is that materialism is a consistent disease at the heart 
of so many structures of injustice. Um, it, it is it, when when human beings get to the point that. Um, To the point that they they don't really believe in in a cause other than what allows them to consume. Um, they surrender their fate to the elite because then the elite knows that as long as you give them enough, just enough, to keep them docile, um, but never enough so that they can have time to aspire, to dream, to hope, to... Uh, then you, 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 then human beings become controllable like a herd. They, they, they literally lose their human qualities and they become led like you, like a shepherd leads a herd. Um, you know, they're allowed to graze here, and then they're moved to graze here, and then they're moved to graze here, and that's their entire life. And, um, and, and that's, I think, at, at the heart of what is so problematic about what we call today in our life materialism, is that it, it robs that wonderful creature that complex, that sophisticated creature capable of dreams and hopes and aspirations, capable of logic and thinking and so on, into nothing but a grazing animal. That's it. And, and that comes through in, in so many parts of the Quran. And when, when the Quran consistently talks to people and say, you know, do, do not become like an am, do not become like a herd. Um, now, as to the, 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 uh, the call that, you know, Allah will forgive you, it, it's interesting because, you know, um, whenever, the Quran always has prophets mention Ghufran as they confront inequitous people. But if you go back and you look at all the times where prophets mention Ghufran as they confront inequitous people, Ghufran forgiveness. Um, it seems it, 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 the we don't have a single instance in the Quran where they respond because of, of that. So I think that that discourse, it's like saying the principle has to always be as you call towards what is right, what is justice, is to always remind people that forgiveness it's like forgiveness here stands for correcting your course. It's always open to you. You can do better. It's like in our language today is saying, you can do better. You can change your life. Now, 
And the fact of the matter is, most of the time, people will not change their life for the better, and they will not. So Gufran here is like, it's, it's literally like, uh, don't just be someone that warns people about punishments, but always remind them of the hope. And that's how I take the, the whole Quranic discourse on Gufran. Okay, I know we're winding down to our last few minutes, but one last question. Um, trauma destroyed my life far worse than any midlife crisis. How do I not drown? Well, um, because you know, uh, that so much depends on what type of trauma. Um, you know, um, because trauma, you know, that's what type of trauma they, it is, I mean, the, the, um, because I, I'm not sure where the, you know, what, what type of trauma we're talking about, because a lot of the particulars make a big difference, a very big difference on what you tell people. Um, but the, the elements is if The, the the core issue remains the same. The core issue remains the same. And that is, there is one healing power in the universe. It is the same one source of light in the universe. The absence of the, from that light is darkness. And the absence from that good is injury. When people do horrendous things, it's not because they have the power of God with them. It is because they have the power of the opposite of God with them. In our language, they have shaitani forces with them. And but the, the, where the particulars make a difference, sometimes certain trauma makes us completely frozen, unable to move, take any step forward. Um, and the best advice someone can give us is how for someone to take our hand to help us step forward that any attempt to tell us, oh, don't worry, take a step forward yourself, is, is, is frivolous or irresponsible. Other types of trauma, the damage is not so extensive. So you can't tell people, you know, here's what you need to do to take a step forward. Um, 
Yeah, I don't want to be irresponsible by by saying generalities that would um, that could potentially cause more damage without knowing more. Thank you so much. Um, again, um, thank you everyone for, for joining us. And um, this was so amazing as always. And um, inshallah, look forward to getting together again on Saturday, right? And uh, so everybody have a wonderful rest of the week. And um, we will see you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. See you guys.